Peace, grace, this is Pastor Colton Lott from First Christian Church, Disciples of Christ, El Reno. We have the privilege of building Christian community in El Reno for the world. And so if you care about building Christian community or El Reno or the world, we're glad you're listening to this podcast. If you want to help contribute to the gospel work of this congregation, please visit our website, fcclreno.org, and go to the Give Online tab. And now, here's the sermon for the week. Today's scripture comes to us from Acts 6, 1 through 7. Since the uh, Father's Day show is still going on behind me, it's going to be okay. You can listen while I read, or you can pull out your pew Bible. Now during those days when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the twelve called together the whole community of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the word. What they said pleased the whole community, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, together with Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. They had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The word of God continued to spread. The number of the disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. May God add blessings to the readings of these words in every time and in every place. Would you pray with me? God, open us up in this morning that we may see what you have before us. That we may hear what you are saying to us and to this church. That we may bear with glad hearts and broad shoulders the ministry and the task that you have called and equipped us for. May these words become alive in our sight, for surely they are the living word of God. Speak through me, in spite of me, so we might all experience something holy, something good, and something true. Amen. It feels like a day of celebration today. The weather is good, and I mean, this great August weather we're having this June is making me feel summertime good. Happy Juneteenth, friends. Someone this week asked me again, what's Juneteenth? And it is newer, a newer holiday for some of us, and it's an old one for others. But it remembers June 19th, 1865. When enslaved persons in Galveston, Texas were finally told of their freedom some two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation and two months after the end of the Civil War. And it celebrates the end of institutional slavery in the former Confederacy and serves today as a marker both for the short history of freedom 
and also the links to which we still must go together to be truly free. And I hope that you all are having the best Father's Day available to you. I know for some this is happy, and for some this is sorrow, and for others it's all mixed up. Whatever it is, I hope it holds you as well as it can, and that you are able to hold it as well as you can. I'm grateful that the last couple of days I got to spend in Ada, and I was with my dad, and yesterday we did what we do best, which is work on my grandmother's yard, and so I'm an even more pink-faced individual than I normally am today. And in honor of Father's Day, I'm going to do something that I rarely do. I'm going to talk about football for a bit. Really. And if you know me well, you'll know that in my world, it's my fiance Kelsey, who's the football watcher. She served for four years in the pride of Texas Christian University. Go Frogs. And when we were deciding on a wedding date, we were, in fact, this close to moving it. Because it's the same day as the OUTCU game. But it's away, so it'll be okay. You all can come. So I'm swerving out of my lane a bit here. I'm going to let you know. But I'm doing so because our scripture reminded me of one practice that the NFL implements called the Rooney Rule. For the last almost 20 years, the Rooney Rule has been in place. And it's stipulated that when an NFL team goes to hire a head coach... An ethnic minority candidate must be interviewed. This rule came about after the controversial firings of two black NFL coaches, head coaches, Tony Dungy and Dennis Green in 2002. And in their wake, U.S. civil rights attorneys Cyrus Mary and Johnny Cochran released a study showing that black head coaches, despite winning a higher percentage of games, were less likely to be hired and more likely to be fired than white counterparts. Now, of course, the Rooney Rule wasn't brought about because everyone had a good change of heart, but because two former NFL players, Kellen Winslow and John Wooten, took this information and organized for change. And NFL players who are majority black joined in and pooled their organization to try a new outcome so that a more just reality could be shared. Because the reality to that point was that the first black head coach was named Fritz Pollard. And he was hired in the 1920s. And it would be 60 years later before Art Snell was hired in 1989. The next black head coach in an NFL team. Between Pollard's coaching and 2003, there were seven minority head coaches in total. But in the first 11 years of the Rooney Rule, there were 13 more added. Soon in 2007, the rule grew to to include general managers and eventually all senior operations football staff. The Rooney Rule was effective for a time. It helped to break down a barrier that the NFL was stumbling up against, preventing their coaching staff from looking more like the players who make the game work and preventing the game from benefiting from talented coaching and other professional talent. So sometimes it is, in fact, those moments of crisis that call for controversial solutions to try and effect a just end. Just ask Peter. In Act 6, we come to a story not too dissimilar, where real pain is taking hold, And a division seems like it will squander the whole 
bit of the church. But to understand that, you need to understand a bit of brief backstory. By this point in world history, the Jewish people did not just live in modern-day Israel-Palestine, but they lived all around the Mediterranean world. Already there had been a Jewish diaspora. And many of those Jewish persons who did not live in what we call Judea, Samaria, um, and Galilee, spoke Greek, the common language of culture and commerce for the first century. And these were known as Hellenistic or Greek Jews. But of course, the church grew up in and around these areas, Judea, Samaria, Galilee, just like Jesus. And these individuals spoke Aramaic, and in Acts 6 are known as the Hebrews. And so, while I think many of us have this very cute image of the first church, that all was good and well, and the first followers of Jesus were so zealous that no problem, no sin, no division could ever come between them, the actual truth is much less tidy. Today's reading from Acts of the Apostles tells us that in the early life of the first church, a serious issue of prejudice occurred. The Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews, lodged a complaint against the Hebrews, the Aramaic-speaking Jews, because the Hellenistic Jews' widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of bread. This was serious. Not only did it threaten the unity of the first church, it had the potential to permanently damage their fellowship. But even more so, that first church found itself falling short of their call by God to build that kind of community where Jesus' presence was truly known as they witnessed to the resurrection of Jesus with love, with justice, with equality, with equity. And, of course, lest we forget, it's not just a symbolic hurt. Real widows were suffering because they were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. Widows were and are the surviving female spouse. But this category in the Bible sometimes includes even more, including those who are economically vulnerable, unable to provide for themselves because of social regulations or stigmas, or where an economic system has excluded an individual because of a disability. These widows of that first church had great need. And that first church was trying to fill the gap for these widows, just like we do today. Except, it turns out, they were actually only doing that for some widows. So Peter, our perennial problem solver, hops to it. It's not right, he says, that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. He thus asks the church to name seven men of good state, full of wisdom, to be appointed to the task. And the church named seven men, Stephen, with Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaus. But here's what's radical about that list of names that's easy to miss because we speak neither Aramaic or unless I'm very surprised, Greek, any Greek speakers out there. 
The surprise here is that the community didn't name a Hellenistic Hebrew joint working committee to solve the problem of discrimination against the Hellenistic Jews. These are seven men with Greek names. While Acts does not explicitly say it, we can reasonably assume that the first church tried a radical intervention. When they learned that some of the church was being harmed, they put those closer to the hurt in charge. They handed over the distribution of food to the Hellenistic Jews. These table waiters, the servers, the diakonos, are the first deacons. And those 12 devoted to prayer and serving the word, the overseers, the teachers, those attending to prayer, are what we pattern our elders after. Some 2,000 years later, we carry forth in our own congregation this radical attempt to heal an early rupture in the first church. Now our June worship series is church work. And we're looking at how the church has always, even in its first instance, been organized for mission and ministry. This is important spiritual work for us to attend to as a community because our restructure team is finalizing their proposal for how our congregation might consider organizing itself for mission and ministry in 2023 and beyond. It's important that as a congregation we begin doing that work to prepare our hearts and our minds and our spirits to receive their insights willingly and with preparation. We often, I think, in the church think that the structure with its special names and seemingly funny rituals and all of the steps it often takes to make something happen must be some kind of mystical, divine gift written in stone, intrinsically valuable, coming down from the light of heaven. But that's never really been the story of the church. Even the first church based its structure on the needs of the community as they gathered to be witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus and the power that God has to break down every barrier that would stop God's love, God's justice, God's deep shalom, or that sense of whole peace, wholeness of life that is meant to be shared by all. And the creation of the diaconate is one important instance where the need of the community to be more inclusive and more just required that first church to create a new structure. Now, in the 21st century, the Rooney Rule hasn't been what we would call a sweeping success, by the way. And I don't bring it up this morning because I think it's something that's, in, that's inherently worthy of celebration. It's a structure that had good initial results for about a decade, but then the old albatross of implicit bias, or worse, outright discrimination, took hold. And it soon became clear that teams were interviewing ethnic minority candidates, but never had an intention to hire any of them. And so instead of going in open-minded, they were interested in only checking the box on the form, which is the problem when you put boxes on forms, and ultimately wasting the time of those candidates 
and more critically, blocking the inclusion of black and other leaders of color in senior NFL teams. But I bring up the Rooney Rule this morning because there's one thing that I do value, and that it's been a work in progress. It's been revised and revised again. And for the 2022 season, the Rooney Rule has been revised again so that the teams are now required to have a person who's an ethnic minority or a woman serve as an offensive coaching staff member on each and every team. This is because of the trend for offensive coaching staff to become the most likely place to produce future head coaches. And so the NFL is working to ensure that opportunities exist all up and down the leadership pipeline for folks who have undoubtedly experienced discrimination and whose presence would enrich the game. And they're going to see if it works. Sometimes structural interventions help. Sometimes they hurt. Sometimes they have mixed results. But the worst thing to my mind is to simply do nothing and call it a day. Equally, for what it's worth, Peter's attempt only holds up so well. Soon the Apostle James will be killed by Herod and there won't simply be the twelve anymore. Others are going to come along and be apostles and it's going to grow and the church, the ones devoted to prayer and to the word in the church will include even those like the reviled Saul of Tarsus who we'll talk about next week. And indeed, I think it might be fair to read a bit of snideness in Peter's comment that it's improper for the twelve to wait on tables. And the seven dude, but the seven deacons who we encounter in Acts 6 are going to be given other duties as assigned. Stephen will end up being the first martyr and he will give a sermon before the Sanhedrin that will rival the sermon of any other given by a Christian since. It will be Philip who encounters and baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch in one of the most touching stories in all of the Bible They were never going to just be serving tables. And indeed, in the story of the church, it will not be long until that one qualifier of man will be held irrelevant. Paul will talk about a deacon named Phoebe. And he will write about an apostle named Junia. And these women are like so many other women who are part of the earliest leadership of the church. But even within the life of the first church... They will be recognized, named, and titled leaders too. My friends, as we go into this season of wondering how God calls us to exist as we divide and share the labor of ministry, I think this story is important to us because it reminds us that we will always have work to do. To make sure that the fullness of our congregation shows up in every part of our shared ministry and mission. Being a diverse community is always a work in progress. We never will arrive. There will always be a revision down the road. And our church has chosen to be a diverse community. We've chosen to be distinctly and intentionally diverse in two ways. A diverse congregation in generation and in our leadership by gender. This congregation, like so many others, has had moments when we were lauded for our boldness and sometimes noted for our slowness. But nevertheless, 
We are consistently and still working to make sure that all ages, both younger and older, are leading our church. We are working sure that our church is led by women and men in every aspect of this congregation. These are works in progress. And we are countercultural in our commitments. And so because of this, no simple rule will help us sustain our intentionality of being diverse in gender and generation. This is why it is so important to consistently check in to making sure that our commitment to being an intergenerational congregation and a church that recognizes that women are called to the life, leadership, and ministry of the church is being lived out in all of our decisions and helping to create structures where our commitments can come to life. Now I know that the problem of when we talk about what socially divides us is the fear that we will end up leaving the table even more divided than ever before. And that's always a possibility. But my hope and my prayer is that when we come to the places where our diversity could divide us, that we will also see the place that this could be where we are multiplied instead. Here's what I mean by that. There is no way That Peter could have known what would happen next. Humans are bad at telling the future. But he knew, he knew that the first church needed attention to an important area that he couldn't give it. Nor the others and the twelve. Not only because they were busy, and they were. But also, critically and crucially, because he was a Hebrew and he wasn't a Hellenist. So instead of trying to fix it all by himself, he divided the labor and the leadership of the church to see what God would do next. And in what seemed like it would have been a moment of insurmountable division, the church worked through this obstacle and God did not just add to their numbers, God multiplied their numbers. Friends, we need each other and we need our unique experiences to come together and to show up so that we can build a church that includes and holds more and more and more types of people. Because while our differences could be the things that divide us, they are not inherently deficiencies, these differences. Nor are our divisions the end of the equation. In the unpredictable work of the Holy Spirit, these are often the places where the multiplication begins. My friends, you probably know this, but I want to remind you that it is important for our young people to look up and to see it's not just a one-man show, but that Pastor Tara is able to preach, preside at the table, attend to the word and to the prayers. It's important for an older person to look out and see junior deacons unsure of which, am I six or five? Do I go this way or that way? It's important to see them taking on that work, sharing in this ministry of service. It is important, my friends, for those little children to look out 
and to see a cadre of adults from every generation showing up to work together, to love together, to be present in El Reno, but for the world. And it's not just important for the people in this room or the people who join us online. But it's important for those who are beyond the walls of this room to peek in every now and then and when they do to see someone that looks like them, that lives like them, praying and serving and leading and loving in Jesus' name. So when we encounter divisions, and we certainly will in this opinionated church, may we be reminded To live into our commitments of a church that one day will have no barriers. Will have no walls. A church that welcomes every generation, every gender. As we build Christian communities where discipleship and relationship and compassion are the gold standard for living. My hope and my prayer is that instead of succumbing to division in our differences... We are instead open to a God who takes our differences to multiply us instead. So may our ministry and our mission be supported by a structure that is nimble enough so that we can be open to the God who multiplies even in those moments when we see division. But God sees opportunity. Amen.